in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington. How you doing, sir? Good evening, everybody. I'm doing fantastic. Got some big news, Brian. You ready? I'm ready. We're bringing him back. The Godfather. The Godfather of Retro Movie Roundtable is coming back. Mr. John Flack. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, man. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be back. That's right. And if anybody who's hopped on the show more recently, if you go way, way, way back in the anals of the show, I don't know why I said anals. That sounds... Anals. Yeah, I don't... If you go way back at the beginning of the show... Russell has first blood on (laughs) cursing tonight with anals. (laughs) John Fleck helped me write this show outline, figure out what this crazy thing should be, and uh, helped me figure out what it was. So he's the inventor. There would be no show without him. So thank you, John, for coming back to us from the Greensboro area of North Carolina. So welcome back, sir. Well, thanks for having me back. It's a Veterans Day episode. One of our first ones that we did was a Veterans Day show. So uh, what's a war movie battle scene that made the biggest impact on you, Brian? I had a really hard time narrowing this down, so I'm just going to rattle off a couple as quickly as possible. Greg Kinnear pulling a gun on uh, the fellow uh, chopper commander and We Were Soldiers. The convoy cheering for Greyhound after they were relieved crossing the Pacific. Private Ryan dropping to his knees on the Normandy graveyard. Please, Lord, let me save one more from Hacksaw Ridge. The stand at Little Round Top before the charge, and probably the panning of Dunkirk Beach at the end of Atonement. You did have a hard time narrowing this down, clearly. John, yes. how about you? What about you? What's a, what's a battle scene that particularly affected you? Probably won't be surprised by this, but the movie Platoon, where uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Sergeant Elias, uh, oh, yeah. that was a pretty intense one. Maybe this is a basic answer, but I like the uh, Saving Private Ryan D-Day scene. That's a big one. It resonated with me pretty, pretty hard. So uh, anyway, that one, that one sticks in my mind. Uh, what is the last movie you saw, Brian? Let's see. The last movie I saw was called uh, See How They Run with Sam Rockwell, Rockwell and uh, C.R.C. Ronan. I gave up a long time ago on that one. Yeah. Uh, how about you, John? As far as newer movies, uh, Hocus Pocus 2. I didn't know there was a second one. It just came out this Halloween. You should probably forget about it. (laughs) Yep. Go on believing there isn't a second one. Okay. Does it demand a third, do you think? I I, I don't (laughs) think so, but I didn't know the first one demanded a sequel. These things come in threes, I guess. My last one was Beverly Hills Ninja from 97. Oh, good. It's an excellent choice. Yeah. Now, today's movie, we're going to be doing what, Brian? We are doing Top Gun. So, in honor of Top Gun, we're going to have to give out some call names for this. Now, Fry, you helped spearhead this effort 
I wanted to see what, uh, what would you, what would you, what would your call name be? We'll go around here. I'm going to start with, uh, Dustin. I'm going to name Dustin. His call sign is going to be Chapstick. Okay. I, I have a few that I feel like are fairly, <laughs> fairly set in stone and, uh, Dustin's one of them. So, uh, yeah, Dustin's call sign is Chapstick. I've got, I've got Lizzie down as Predator, given the, the, the noise her microphone makes when it cuts out on us. I think the audience at home might not actually get to hear that most of the time, but it is very Predator-like. Sure. Uh, well, that, that's, that's why I'm, I, I'm not going to call Dustin out for why he's Chapstick. That'll have to come in our social media. You'll have to ask Dustin why his call sign is Chapstick, but I was going to let uh, Lizzie slide because, because uh, you guys don't get to actually hear that part. And then uh, lastly is Chad, who is, I mean, literally absolutely has to be call sign Snuggles. And I will follow up with more on, more on that in a minute. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John, how about you, man? Well, you know, I, I struggled with this for a little while and actually picking yours, Russell, it came down to uh, either Fountainhead or Rourke. I didn't ever, I don't know if you ever read it, but oh, yeah. for me, uh, the architecture reference seemed uh, right on for you. I appreciate it. I would like to blow up some ugly looking buildings. I, uh... <laughs> That does sound like right up my alley. You give me a fighter jet, I might go after yeah, but say, like, don't knock that. to do it. Yeah, it's like, hey, don't blow that building over. Not that one. That's not the mission. What is he doing? No, that makes good <laughs> sense. I like it. I'm going rogue too. How about you? Uh, or, or, and what do we, what do we give uh, Brian, John? Well, one I, I finally kind of settled on because I, I had a number of them <laughs> that I went through. But uh, I just think it fits as a call sign, but a waffle in front of his last name. but. Waffle fry, I like it. I think yeah, waffle fry. That is good. I was uh, I was not nearly as kind to Russ with mine. My uh, my Russell possible call signs, and I'll let him pick. I I, I got a I got a uh, a ball uh, or a group here. I thought call sign lists, but with a picture of like an old European like stockade lists on his helmet, and then uh, AutoCAD, and then just because, <laughs> like I said, I wasn't very kind. Uh, Laker. I thought that would just oh, be would, special. Yeah. I mean, you could call me Celtic if you wanted to, or or like uh, no, 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 or something, because I'm short uh, and I like the Celtics. But I mean, come on, my <laughs> And then uh, uh, Flack, I I literally came up with one and couldn't think of anything better than that, and it was call sign Blockbuster. <laughs> All right, I like it. So for Dustin, he is a. He runs uh, both resorts and bed and breakfasts and stuff like this, so I called him the facilitator. Um, it sounds tough. <laughs> and um, uh, So Lizzie is from Louisville, and I think a name that would be tough for her would be Slugger. For Chad, it would be Snuggles. Um, yep. That's, I, it's the only one that I won't budge on. Yep. So for Fry, you're, you're such a skier. I went with Yeti on this one. Okay. Um, Funny enough, they, funny enough, they had like a plug-in software to find your own call name, and John did it a couple of times. This is one of the ones he came up with, but I thought of this before then, so I'm still claiming it. So, you do like coffee a lot, so I thought jitters was pretty decent too. So, um, and then, so for John, other than The Godfather, which is definitely my go-to on this one, he has a higher tolerance for cold than I do for sure. So Eskimo, and then you two have been. Uh, confused for each other and or being brothers and or 
you your names would be Frick and Frack. The thought crossed my mind. Yeah, yeah, that was that, that was that was on my uh, my notepad as well. Yes, I was like, which one's Frick and which one's Frack? I mean, technically, it could just be Frick and Flack. So, um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was good fun, except for the Laker part. I, I'm from West Virginia, where there, there's about as many lakes as there are in LA. So I I, I recuse myself. <laughs> that. that might be your name. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like. Ch- Chad tried to fight it, and I was like, "Chad, the more you fight it, it's uh, just not a not yeah, a sound John, plan to fight this." Do things. you make do you make it a clean sweep? It's Chad Snuggles. Snuggles, yeah, it's unfortunate, Chad. Sorry. Like, <laughs> oh, he knew. He knew. I I said, "Oh, we're gonna give each other nicknames," and he was like, "He couldn't have been surprised." <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Oh, do not." No, he said it. He was like, "Oh, not Snuggles," and I'm like, "Sorry." It is. <laughs> yes. All right. It's like. Till the day you die, man. <laughs> it's like, just turn into it, man. You gotta mm-hmm. own that. Own the teddy bear. Yeah. All right. Today's movie is Top Gun. It stars Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis, Val Kilmer, Anthony Edwards, and Tom Skerritt. It's released in 1986. Its budget is $15 million. It grosses way more than $176.7 million. Number one in the box office in 1986. Comes in ahead of Crocodile Dundee. And IMDb doesn't necessarily love this movie. It gives it a 6.9. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like it even less. It has a 57%. Uh, but the audience score of Rotten Tomatoes is kinder than the IMDb score and has an 83%. Some actually mixed reviews there, surprisingly so, for this movie that I perceive to be quite beloved. It's an Academy Award winner, actually, for Best Original Song by Berlin's Take My Breath Away. And it is an Academy Award nominee for Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and Best Sound Effects. It is a Golden Globes winner as well for Best Original Song. And Golden Globes nominee for Score as well. It is a People's Choice Award winner. And it is an Apex Scroll Awards nominee for seven times. Didn't win any of those, but still a lot of nominations there. And AFI Distinctions, the 100 top movie quotes. I feel the need. The need for speed comes in at number 94. John, have you seen Top Gun before? If so, what was your background with it? I've seen Top Gun countless times and saw it. Uh, I was too young to remember how old I was, honestly. So I'd seen it plenty of times. No specific expectations coming in again. Just enjoy watching it. Yeah. And do you feel like it's aged differently as you've seen it throughout the years? Yes. I and mean, this year, you know, specifically with the new Top Gun coming out, it's changed kind of my viewpoints on it. But yeah. It's holding up? It holds up for me, at least. I can see some things that are a little dated, but I, I think it holds up personally. Okay. Yeah. Now, Brian, how about you? you you're Mr. Military Movie Guy here at Retro Movie Roundtable. I take it you've seen this one before? <laughs> yeah, once or twice. <laughs> this, is, this definitely makes the list of, oh, it's on TV. I'll stop and watch it. But wait, you own it. Why watch the commercials? I did it anyway. It's, I've got it in a couple different formats. This is definitely a anytime, whenever you want to kind of movie for me. I want to say that this movie was my introduction to Tom Cruise. Thank God it wasn't Legend. But Aww. I, uh, yeah, so I, I want to say that this was really my, because I, like, I think I saw Days of Thunder and Cocktail after this. So I, I'm pretty sure it was my first real introduction to Tom Cruise. And uh, it, you know, it kicked off a whole, uh, load of fun movies with him in it uh, throughout his career. Yeah, well, I mean, it was much of the countries. This is what made Tom Cruise a household name, so you're not alone there. I mean, 
he had broken through with risky business prior to this, but uh, he he definitely establishes himself as Hollywood elite with this one. So uh, your story there is similar to many. Actually, I did not get this one until much later. My my first experience with the Top Gun is at Paramount's Kings Island, and I had ridden a number of roller coasters that day, but for some reason, I stood in line for a very long time, and my poor mother, I chickened out at the very end and decided not to get on the ride, Top Gun, and it kind of haunted me. I rode the beast, I did some other tougher rides that day, but I chickened out for Top Gun. Later, uh, I was staying over at a friend's house, and it was late at night, and I was like, yeah, we're going to watch Top Gun, and I was like, all right, I've never seen that movie, everyone's really excited, this is going to be great, and I fell asleep, so deferred a few deferred again uh i mean i fell asleep quickly so i didn't really 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 give this a sit down until college to be honest with you i'm not mr military movie guy so i'm this is why i work with fry so he fills in my deficiencies when i got to it i think i had had it built up for me so many times and so i had a little bit of a this movie is really liked by a lot of people i figured there'd be a little more to it than this and it's a popcorn movie. It's, that's what it is. And it, I think I went in going for too much the first time. So this is a movie better taken, as Fry said, just an anytime kind of movie. And it's not a challenging movie. So you need to go in just being like, I'm just going to have some fun here. And that helps a lot. So subsequent viewings have gone better for me. Honestly, uh, I had it on this evening when I was cooking dinner. And I could just go in and out. It's fun like that. It's up. Uh... I love anything that flies, so I guess that's probably one reason I liked it so much. But, Fry, you're absolutely right on that. The dinner might take your breath away, though. <laughs> there, <laughs> and it's true. Like There are movies that deal with like pilot antics that I'll watch over and over and over again that weren't good movies. Like Case in point was uh, uh, Wing Commander, uh, back with Matthew Lillard, Freddie Prince Jr. Like... That, like, I can intellectually tell you it wasn't a good movie. I'll still watch it if you want to. Like, you can show up and be like, Wing Commander? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll do it. And it wasn't just because I was a fan of the video game. It's, it's pilot antics, man. Give me pilot antics all day long. So if you just have a craving to watch Wing Commander and you happen to live in the Spokane, Washington area, I mean, just cruise on by and knock on <laughs> I'm in. Fry's door. Yeah, I'm in. Fry will be like, come on in, buddy. I got some popcorn. He always has popcorn. That's how you'll know it's his house. It smells like popcorn. I'll give you the Russell Wilson. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> All right. There's going to be spoilers that lie ahead. So for those who haven't seen Top Gun, don't be afraid to ride the roller coaster. It's fun. Come back and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. 
So for those who haven't seen Top Gun since 1986, Fry, do you want to refresh people's memories? Maverick, an ace pilot, and his Rio Goose have a close encounter with a couple MiGs and do but don't slide into fellow pilot Cougar's spot at the, at the illustrious Top Gun Academy. Upon arrival, they meet Iceman and Slider, their clear competition for the Top Gun, Gun Trophy. During their introduction to the program, Mav falls for military contractor Callsign Charlie. During several engagements with his instructors, he establishes his unorthodox tactics and brilliance flying to the chagrin of his fellow classmates, including the disdain of Iceman. After an eye candy volleyball scene so that you can talk your date into coming to see it with you in the theaters, Mav meets up with Charlie and their love affair commences. Then tragedy strikes and during a training accident, Goose is killed. Shaken by the incident, Mav considers quitting until speaking with his CEO, who lets him know that his father, who had at this point been considered a disgrace, actually was a hero who saved many of his fellow pilots. He re-enlists and graduates Top Gun just in time to go on a super important mission, face his fear, ask Goose for help, and save Iceman. All landing with a hug and a you-can-be-my-wingman anytime. All right. So the U.S. Navy sets up recruiting booths in major cinemas to try and capture oh, yeah. all the adrenaline-charged dudes leaving the screenings, and they had the highest application rates for years. There were 500% increase in recruits wanting to enter the aviation program to the Navy here. So it clearly resonated. Like I said, number one movie of the year. This thing is catching the country by storm, and. Have we seen anything like this? I mean, yes, Star Wars has X-Wing fighters, but to see authentic Air Force slash U.S. Navy fighter pilots, had we seen anything like this before, John? Have we seen anything like this? Yeah. Not to my knowledge, no. Well, with the camera work they did then, like for the 80s, and just access, you know, the Navy gave them obviously unlimited access and to and encourage them and help them, you know, mounting these cameras. You know, you can see, like, some of the cameras in the filming, but I don't think we had anything quite that sharp and, you know, clear, especially with jets, you know, fighting like that. Like, I think I think the next movie after this that really piqued my interest in the way this did was likely Independence Day. That's fair, which we covered earlier this year. That's another great one. I think that, you know, when you go to Washington, by far, the Smithsonian museum that gets the most visitors every year um even though i personally recommend the national gallery is uh, the uh air and space museum just is so amazingly intended people have this magnetic uh, draw to fighter jets and to going fast like that and there's just there is something that's just pure adrenaline to it and it's a hard thing to bring to the screen it's a hard thing not to just feel like you're in a cockpit shooting a face shot of a pilot but this movie brings that energy of fighter jets to some degree to the big screen, as best as one can anyway. And it still, still looks good, I think. I think that's one of the things that just captivated people by it. It, it gave them a thrill. Yeah, I can still remember the booth set up outside of Fast and the Furious for like NOS and Corona and Full Throttle. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Point taken, though. It is. It is. It's. It's so true. And and this is going to be the only, the only illusion that I will plug for its sequel. I have very, very rarely left a movie theater so happy as when I left Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. So you felt 
like you didn't feel when you left Crystal Skull? <laughs> I really want I really want to I really want to quote South Park on this, but I won't in respect to Russell's having to edit this. I will say I, I, I'm not going to lie. When I first heard they were doing a sequel to Top Gun, I was like, "Oh no." Oh no, like, don't ruin that one for me, please. No, but Fry, you're right. It felt really good uh, at the end of that one. And I'm going to ask another question here. This movie is so notoriously categorized a dude movie. You know, like Die Hard, or Predator, or Terminator. But I'm going to challenge that right now. This movie has a lot here for the ladies. This, This has a pretty distinct love story to the backbone of this between Charlie and Maverick. And also, there's this strong female character. She's not just a ditzy, dumb blonde And there. It is a better constructed female character, particularly for this point in cinema. And, as Fry mentioned, a lot of shirtless, handsome dudes playing volleyball. <laughs> hey, it, it, didn't, it didn't make my synopsis, but listen, hats off to uh, Meg Ryan and Anthony Edwards in this. Like, their, their relationship plays a strong but very very succinct and small role in this so there's that too yeah yeah i i don't know that this movie is just a dude movie which is another thing that i think is you know adding to its success at the time Uh oh russell saying nice things about it russell saying nice things (laughs) i'm gonna call you out for this later i'll be like i heard you say at least a dozen nice things about it how is this a two (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's talk about that though john what do you think about this character charlie and then maverick here and their relationship together because i'll be honest with you it's a big part of this movie absolutely it's a big part of the film i mean because it's also you know showing like conflicts of interest because you know she's like uh what an astrophysicist or aeronautical aeronautical engineer yeah, something like that. And, you know, she's studying him and she's interested in this MiG that no one had ever seen before. I think it's a made-up jet, but, you know, wants to get Maverick's uh, data on it, like, from an objective viewpoint. But then, <clears throat> you know, it gets muddied by, you know, the romantic relationship. And, you know, for for both of them. So, yes, uh, Russell, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a big, big part of the story. But the volleyball scene, just, it's a fair point, <laughs> man, like, there is a dude movie uh, aspect to it, I think. Uh, I, I can kind of see that, especially for someone who hasn't actually seen it, just maybe bits and pieces. Uh, but there are deeper layers to it. There's a 100% chance that after seeing this movie, a bunch of dudes are like, hey, let's go down to the beach and play volleyball with their shirts on. <laughs> like, I guarantee you that was not the turnoff that it may have been made out to be like, yeah, oh, let's get, yeah, we're going to go out and flex. I guarantee you that happened. Yeah. 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 Kelly McGillis's character was based on Christine Fox, a civilian flight instructor. Producers met on Miramar base while doing research to prepare for the film. And Fox eventually rose through the ranks at the Pentagon and retired as acting deputy secretary of defense. Highest post ever held by a woman at the Department of Defense, at least at the time. That is cool that you're not getting Denise Richards, nuclear physicist. And here, and and I think that helps round this movie out a lot. I mean, without her, Maverick's this young person, and he's naive, and so she's kind of playing experienced, and so she's 
not necessarily experienced in fighting, but she's intelligent, and so he's pursuing an older woman. There's something also refreshing about this movie, and that you have this extremely plucky, confident, boyish like energy that you have with Cruz, and McGillis is playing somebody who's more mature. She's literally older, which is unusual for Hollywood to do, and normally Hollywood would sit there and cast somebody who's 10 years younger than the main male actor. So that's another interesting thing that they did here, and it flips the dynamic that this relationship has in a very interesting way. And he's working really hard. Obviously, she, like you said, there's a conflict of interest, John, but I mean, he's not just flexing that smile and rolling out the Everly Brothers or um, Righteous Brothers. Russell, I got to clear the air. I got to clear the air for a second. Are you daring to suggest that Kelly McGillis plays a more stable, believable, strong female character than Denise Richards? Denise Richards. Thank you. I, it took me that long to forget her name. <laughs> there we go. All right, never mind. You know, normally all he has to do is pop out the Righteous Brothers and saying you've lost that love and feeling and they're putty in his hands, but not this woman. She makes him work for it. That lipstick, man. Like, her red lipstick, that, that is a... There should be a, a, a color called Top Gun Red. There that probably, probably is. is. I yeah. mean, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know this for sure, but I mean... I'm, I'm going to Google it right now. <laughs> you know what Dustin will be upset with is if they have a Top Gun Red chapstick, though. <laughs> Man's not a fan of chapstick. As previously, I, yeah, I, I, I very, very much need everybody who listens to this podcast to spam him on our social media, asking what his deal is with chapstick because it is hysterical. He's not a fan. It's interesting though. I, I'm going to this right away because when I watched this movie, I was surprised and taken aback. I thought we'd be in combat scene after combat scene after combat scene. We don't get combat until you know the last 15 minutes of this movie. It's all building up to going through the program. And this, this romance is honestly the part that I remembered most coming into it. The action scenes, they hit you real hard at the beginning, and then they kind of go away from it for quite a while. And then they finish. They finish big on a big crescendo. But this is pretty much the backbone of the movie. Challenge me if I'm wrong on this one. But this is where the movie actually lives. I'm still looking up lipstick. Sorry. <laughs> get off lipstick probably but yeah <laughs> <laughs> that might that might be the shade that would be another good name for lipstick but anyway <laughs> <laughs> oh god we're gonna launch retro movie retro, uh, retro movie roundtable cosmetic <laughs> lines so just wait till you see our shop we are not merchandising like we can I, we need to step up our merch game i tell you what you can buy a t-shirt if you want, a hoodie even, but we need to get in the cosmetics game. I mean, Heidi Klum cleaned up on that. I guarantee you there's probably like less than one other podcast doing a cosmetics line. Yeah, we're not monetizing properly. So what is this for you, John? Because like I said, this is very much about the relationship for me. What, what, what's your big experience? I was thinking about what you said and... I think that they're just good at kind of like dialing dialing it up uh, as the movie goes along because like the tra when they're like training at Top Gun and they're like doing the exercises against each other that's a lot of fun at the time like Iceman Maverick like and you know when I was a kid I was like Iceman's a jerk and then you realize later it's like no he's not a jerk he's you know just you know kind of different he but, does have a right, stick up Ice his butt man I am dangerous yeah. 
But, you know, it becomes more serious. The stakes get higher, you know, especially, you know, Goose's death and then, like, actual combat. It ramps it up. So I think in a way you're right, Russell. Like, But I, th- I still think there's some meat down there. It's just to be enjoyed in a certain manner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that I find myself wondering is why they didn't weave in his relationship to his father a little bit more. Like, it's there. But even upon further reviewing, I kind of wish it was there more. Like, the, the, the payoff's there of, like, you know, Tom Skerritt's character says, you know, Viper says, like, hey, I know your dad. He's a good pilot. He's like, all right. So, like, <laughs> like the payoff was there, but the buildup, I actually could have used a little more of that. Hey, I'll take a, a Top Gun prequel all about Maverick's dad. As soon as they want to make that, that's going to be a, a fry from Futurama. Futurama take my money. <laughs> what would his call sign be? I, that's a good question. I'm not prepared to answer that, but I, I'll try to have an answer for you toward the end of the, maybe during superlatives, I'll have an answer for that. And don't say Maverick Sr. because that's lame. I don't think, I don't think that's allowed. I, I, I don't know what they do when they run out of like really fun words. But uh, to your question about like, what does this movie mean to you? Like, I think the big thing of this, that I loved about this movie is the camaraderie. And it's not just the firebrand versus the buy the book. It's how the other pilots who are good in their own right fit into this too with guys like Cougar and Wolfman and Sundown and Hollywood. Like those are all fun characters that don't, in my opinion, don't get enough airtime because they're just there to show you what a different level Iceman and Maverick are on. Like, this is already supposed to be the best. For the guy who likes all the X-Wing fighters who don't get film time, this comment is right on brand for you. (laughs) Oh, dude, I have spent my entire life waiting for a Rogue Squadron TV show, movie series. Give it to me. Please get, like, give me Wedge and Tilly's, please. (laughs) That's my plea. To the Star Wars universe, please give me a Rogue Squadron show. So you need a spinoff with Wolfman and Merlin and Jester. Merlin's fantastic. Like this is these are all people that deserve more screen time. I I did think that that the sequel did a little bit better incorporating more interpersonal relationships than this one did. But I mean, it was all there, and a lot of these guys are kind of fun characters in their own right like was it hollywood that had the the uh cowboy hat if you say it with more confidence i'll just go along with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyway i i just i i love it i love it i love i love the assignment of call signs i think that's awesome that's something that builds strong interpersonal uh, relationships because they're bestowing upon you the name you will be, you know, go down as knock on wood. But it's, I just, I like that brotherhood. And in the case of, you know, the, the armed forces now, the general family dynamic of all being a part of something important. Yeah. You've said this before with other military movies. I didn't feel it as strongly here because the rivalry is certainly more poignant. Yes, the the Goose Maverick companionship is there, but I didn't get the group vibe until the very, very late portion of this movie because a, a lot of this movie is, you know, pushing against each other in a rivalry. Like, they want to be better than the other one, and it's pushing them to the top. So that, I mean, that's that's what a real rivalry is. 
They don't like each other. I feel like you got that from Kilmer and, and Cruz because they are the polar opposite ends of the spectrum of being a good pilot. One relies on instinct. One relies on tried and true method. He's just that good at it. So like I get the, the friction they were trying to create there, but you also have a gamut in between of these other pilots and most of which are friendly and affable. Like that's the gutsiest thing I've ever seen. You know, like they're complimentary to, to Maverick, like their understanding. So there's a mutual respect that happens in the middle of the, the group that isn't just the fire and the ice. Now, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about that. I mean, a big part of why this movie is what it is, is the cast. I mean, John, did they get it right or what here? I, I think for the most part, they, they got it right. As far as like recasting, I was like, this is kind of a tough one. I mean, really, Tom Cruise, I can't, can't imagine anyone else playing him, obviously. But Anthony Edwards, just perfect. Like, he's just a perfect casting. Like, who does not love Goose? He's the best friend that nobody deserves. Like, I mean, he's, he's a very good best friend. Or everybody. Yes. I mean, even Iceman says it. Everybody loved him. <laughs> yeah, Fry, did you like this cast? I mean, this is a big part of what sprung it to the top. I mean, Cruz and McGillis, they springboarded this movie to what it became. Uh, I can't say that I followed McGillis much after this, but like I said, it was an introduction to to Tom Cruise. And it was definitely an introduction to Val Kilmer, who I no offense to Tom Cruise. I, I love Val Kilmer. He if he's not you my do. favorite actor, he he might be easily top three at least. It's the volleyball. Kilmer's character in this wasn't a dislikable person to me. I didn't really view him as like he's someone pushing someone to be better sure it starts off with just a friendly or unfriendly rivalry but i felt like by the end of training when he's really forced to to look at what maverick's flying is and he's complaining that maverick's going on this mission it's not about maverick's flying like he knows the ability is there it's where is he in his headspace at this point? Mm-hmm. I don't. I think that had things been different and Goose wasn't dead, I think he would have been like, "Yeah, I want Maverick." Tom Cruise actually needed a hit here. He had come off of two movies that weren't doing as well in the box office. So, like Legend, that, Legend was one of them. I'm not kidding. And Legend, which I that's was, because it sucked a uh, lot. You. You stop it. We released a bad version of it here in America, as we discussed on the show. I mean, the, the, the UK version makes a lot more sense, is longer, and is better made. So that movie has a lot of reasons to see it. And uh, it's not just Tom Cruise's fantastic hair. I mean, the, the incomparable Tom Curry is amazing in that. But anyway, Legend was not appreciated as it should have been. And Tom Cruise is coming into this in need of a hit, and he gets it. And Kelly McGillis is coming off of Witness with uh, Harrison Ford, which is another good performance on her part. An awesome movie, by the way. And so Tom Cruise met Tony Scott, the director, while working with his brother Ridley Scott on Legend, Fry. So you would not get to hear without Legend happening first. So Mm. Cruise reunited with Scott, Tony Scott, that is, and uh, Jerry Breckenheimer and Don Simpson uh, in Days of Thunder, which Cruise co-wrote that one as well. But initially, he did not want to do this movie at all. 
he was thinking it was just be flash dance in the sky. And Brookensheimer tried to convince him. So he took him to where the Navy actually would fly Tom Cruise up, do 5Gs, do barrel rolls, do everything. And he's, he's, uh, he's heaving in the plane. He's, he's barfing. He, is, he gets uh, on the tarmac and runs to a payphone, probably puke on his chin and says, I'm in. I've got to do this movie. I love it. This is great. We talked about that adrenaline thing. Uh, to actually get to experience that was what suckered him in. And he stuck with it. He is a pilot. He owns a fighter plane. Yeah, he gets to do motorcycle work in this one, too. Got the need for speed. Yeah, you think of such a motorcycle guy from, like, the Mission Impossible days. This is where he first gets into it here. His uh, Kawasaki Ninja 900 here. It's the fastest motorcycle in the world at the time, so... Uh, he did have a need for speed, which is so fighter jet pilot thing. That, that, that was so such a good move. I guess I want to say on the casting, too. Like, I think it's the depth of the casting that's impressive. Like, Michael Ironside is nope. Jester. You know, even Meg Ryan, you know, she's not a huge yes. role. But, like, there's just a lot of, like, very talent, like, v- talented actors in here that, uh, kind of like Fry said, don't, don't get all the FaceTime. But it's impressive. Michael Ironside was so convincing that you brought him up as an officer that when he was uh, on the base and character and stuff like that, he heard someone running towards him on the decks and uh, he, he got onto the sailor who was running uh, and told him to slow down. The guy uh, saluted him and slowed down and, like, uh, you know, was, was all paranoid and, like, ooh, 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 ooh. so uh, he, uh, he faked it. So Michael Ironside actually has my favorite call sign in the movie because I don't think outside of maybe Clive Owen, I can think of a more stoic individual to be called something comedic. Like it would blow my mind if Michael Ironside smiled. (laughs) And so the fact that his call sign is Jester is fantastic. Like I love Tom Skerritt. Like I'll watch basically anything with Tom Skerritt in it. But Michael Ironside in this is, it, it, it makes me laugh that he doesn't laugh. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to your boy Val Kilmer, Fry, he also didn't want to do this movie either. He was kind of forced into it through contractual obligations. And Tony Scott had to convince him, too. He was saying, Val Kilmer was saying, this script is really insufficient. Even Scott even said, hey, the script's not that good, but wait do you get in one of these jets, man. Like, it's a blast. And Kilmer ended up enjoying his experience on it. I think he did say it's a little bit... I think he even still says that the writing is, to be honest, a little bit lightweight. But he had a lot of fun, and it was an education to dive into that world and to get to ride the roller coaster, if you will, in these, in these actual jets. So it's interesting that this is so close to not happening in the way that... Because if the formula gets tweaked a little bit, it doesn't happen in the way that it, it doesn't capture that lightning that it is. One of my favorite casting notes here is Tom Cruise. I'm always a fan of this. He's five foot seven, and uh, Kelly McGillis is five foot ten, so that only adds to the, uh, you know, he's confident. He's going after, uh, you know, shorter dude, and they did all the things that they do in movies also that uh, they give him lifts on his shoes and try and have her crouch down and stuff like that. So uh, Tom Cruise will be doing much of this throughout his career. But uh, as a five foot eight guy, I'm sitting there going like, all right, I don't look like Tom Cruise, but that height's good for you. 
other women who wanted that role go to Tatum O'Neill, Jodie Foster, Daryl Hannah, Diane Lane, Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Linda Hamilton, and Carrie Fisher were other people who were considered for that role. So, John, any of those prick your ears and sit there and go like, ooh. I'm glad I'm not the only one just completely put out by Sarah Jessica Parker most of the time. You say Diane Lane? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Diane Lane. Yeah. You could see that. And John Voigt was considered for the role of Viper before Tom Scared ended up bringing it home. So, Nope. Nope. No. <laughs> yeah. They got that one right. Uh, all due respect to John Voigt, who I do like as an actor. Nope. I think John Voight would be a good addition to this group of people without replacing Tom Skerritt. Maybe like the air boss that gets mad after his like third cup of coffee spilled on his shirt after Tom Cruise buzzes the tower. That's that's the John Voight character in this. I want some butts. I want some butts. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was made in close collaboration with the U.S. military, as John had mentioned, in exchange for DOD backing. So the producers agreed to let the department make changes to the script, and they did. Goose died from a malfunction in the equipment, but in the beginning scenes, when Maverick and Goose are helping the other fighter pilot in back into the aircraft carrier, they had that airplane go down. They changed that to be having kind of a panic attack on the person who's training. The military did not want to have two crashers in a training project go down to make them seem incompetent so kind of replacing a an error that leads to a fatality to a kind of panic attack where it was all okay in the end so the beginning is not as tragic as it would have seemed otherwise and again making the military seem less incompetent maverick's love interest charlie also went from being a service member actually in the services to being a civilian because Navy regulations would forbid those officers with being enlisted to each other. So it was even more of a forbidden love as originally constructed. So when you work with the military, you got to scratch their back, too, because they're helping make your movie. Does any of this bother you? I don't know that it bothers me too much. If that was the regulation at the time, then that's what they should do. The civilian thing, I think, gives it a different dynamic, too, honestly, as far as storyline. So maybe I think that it's a better change to the script oh it makes it better okay yeah I'll, I'll agree with the civvy change i think that's good not because i would be offended by fraternization or anything like that i would say this i think that if i were making the film at the time i would have put up a fight only as a smoke screen to get them to provide their own jet fuel i hear that is outrageously expensive yeah you're like, okay, you can make changes to the, to the script, but you guys literally have to pay for all of the flight time. It's interesting, though. Jerry Bruckenheimer and Don Simpson had gone to Paramount, and to get this film greenlit, they agreed to the military to uh, say that the storyline to get access for those planes, those aircraft characters, and all the equipment they needed, they needed that military-grade equipment. I think it's a good trade-off, personally. It is one of those things where uh, Bruckenheimer and Don Simpson I'd worked together before in the movie Flashdance. Have either of you seen that movie before? Oh, Flashdance. Uh, you know, I don't think I have, actually. It's been a long time, but yeah. John, do you see similarities in this? Because they were saying that they kind of found their formula in Flashdance and took it to apply it to uh, Top Gun here. Well, the soundtrack. Yeah. 
that's a big piece of it yeah like i mean for me i, I had it on cassette tape like i totally bought into it like i loved it and i i like flash dance's soundtrack too <laughs> so magnetic stars mcgillison cruz was a big piece of this so a big leading lady uh, who would put butts in the seats the cinematography which is influenced off of the mtv generation of the time uh, the way that this is filmed john that you mentioned is done in a very dynamic exciting way tony scott got this off of having done ads not a, another movie for a car racing a jet he had shown the adrenaline and consumer atmosphere and that made him want him for this and so they brought that eye-catching tendency for the director in here and that's a big piece of it and as you mentioned john the soundtrack is a big part of this it is a big seller for the 80s it's integral to the experience i mean you're gonna get your fair your fill of kenny Loggins here <laughs> not only do i completely agree with that i would say that top gun probably has a top 10 most recognizable soundtrack of all time yeah, it sold. I mean, it was at an era where the movie would sell the soundtrack and the soundtrack would sell the movie. This makes a strong return in the late 90s. It is, it is mostly gone at this point. I don't see soundtracks hawking movies and movies cashing enough soundtracks in the same way anymore. And I haven't seen it since then. Probably the internet and the way music is acquired has changed this. But at least at this time, MTV being a very big thing, music has become a bigger deal to the youth than it had in previous generations. So only realizing that and tapping into the power of putting chart toppers in there, which they did in Flash Dance, that is a big part of what made this all work. Now, personally, this is going to be a hot take. I do not like the soundtrack, but it is, it is well liked by people who were around at the time. That's a bit of heresy on my part, I know, but... That, that is a big part of what makes this movie the cultural phenom that it is. Yeah, I can't follow you down the, uh, the didn't like the soundtrack. Uh, I, I actually think I had a Kenny Loggins featuring Charlene from Archer, Danger Zone, <laughs> as my ringtone for a while. Lana! <laughs> it's iconic. It's, it's truly iconic. R Russell, there's not a, a single song on there you like? You know, I got excited that I looked down at the soundtrack. I listened to it just to give it the old, the old spin before coming on here. The whole thing, the full effect, it was rough for me. But uh, I, I was looking forward to There's a song by Cheap Trick on there. And I forgot, Cheap Trick starts to suck in the 80s. And um, it, it really disappointed me. It was like, uh, oh, you can't go wrong with Cheap Trick. Whenever I get to that track, that's going to go well for me. And then, son of a gun. They, they took that for me, too. So, um, you know, it's almost like, you know, you go in and you're like, I'd like the vanilla scoop ice cream, please. And then they you eat it and it tastes like candy corn. I, I, I will fully admit that playing with the boys is not my favorite song. Uh, I'll agree. It is not a popular opinion, but take, take my breath away, which is, you know, we're, we're going to hop right into it because it's a big part of the movie. But uh, I don't love this song either it's the it's it's what makes it an oscar winner and it's a you know a grammy award winner and it's the biggest song of berlin's career but this is not my era for music i've been well stated on this podcast as saying this a bunch of times and i do not want to be a wet blanket for everybody else's love of this stuff so john pick us up here i mean why is the soundtrack awesome 
Well, because it is that 80s style, which, I mean, I know from previous conversations that it's not really your, your style, so I guess it makes sense. But do, do you not like the electronic uh, kind of styling of it? At least in, like, Take My Breath Away? Um, not really, no. It's just, I mean, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> it's just... This is not for me, and it's okay. <laughs> it's over the top. It's it's a little over the top, and I I guess that's something I like about eighties music. So, yeah, it, it hits it hits for me. Um, I would put "Take My Breath Away" in, and and I'm gonna span probably five or six years here, but I would put "Take My Breath Away" in the same category as "All for Love." from the Three Musketeers soundtrack with uh, Brian Adams and uh, and also from uh, I'm going to blank on it who did the uh, Robin Hood Prince of Theme uh, Thieves love song Brian Adams yeah Oh Brian Adams was that one too Okay so both mm-hmm. of them Brian Adams on both of them It's the love song that goes in the action movie mm-hmm. They were all hits they sold well Do I listen to them all the time No but like, that's something I easily remember from, you know, the Kiefer Three Musketeers and the uh, Costner Robin Hood. I'll tell you, what, for, for having this deep soundtrack, big names that they did, you know, I mean, whether it be Jeep Trick or whether it be, you know, all these other things. So, but they, they sure run the heck out of uh, the Danger Zone. So, I mean, the first <laughs> 16 minutes of this movie is a Danger Zone soundtrack. I'm sorry, a music video. It's like 16 minutes. I don't know how long the song is, but they really stretch it out. Now, obviously, they're, they have pauses and cuts in there. And then, yes, some of it was score, which is a good score, by the way. Uh, kicks it into gear and then leads into that. But it's almost like an intro for Kenny Loggins. And they run it three times throughout this movie. Right there. So, like, like Simon... So like Simon and Garfunkel like appears in The Graduate uh, a bunch of times. I remember Fry being like, "It's a good song, but I think you're overdoing it, guys." I uh, <laughs> I found myself going like, "It's like, do they just have like a Kenny Loggins soundboard where it's just like you know, ready to the danger zone?" And it's like it, like, they, right. like they just push it like uh, like like a morning talk show. If you take Danger Zone out of it, because I do love that song because of this movie, like the fact that you like the score is so much more important to me than you liking the soundtrack. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the soundtrack is the Top Gun soundtrack. Like, that's, that's fine. But one of the, the, the really subtle, awesome things about both Top Gun movies is the score. It is a stronger score. I mean, got nominated for an Oscar, so I mean... But yeah, the, the Top Gun anthem, the, that was the one I listened to the most on the soundtrack. Okay, all right. Well, at least I see where you're coming from on these things for sure. John, what do you think about Tony Scott as a director? This is not our first Tony Scott movie we covered. We did True Romance earlier. Plenty of movies by Ridley Scott as well. But what do you think about Tony Scott as a director? And what do you think about him here at this point in his career? I mean, I think he's as on top of his game as he ever ever is. Uh, I mean, he, he's really good at kind of the thrills and the action and just what they push the cinematography to for you know what the 80s had to, to offer. Uh, is just phenomenal, and you know, kind of getting this cast all to congeal. And uh, without him, I don't think any of it works. John Carpenter and David Cronenberg are offered this movie. They both turn it down. They don't want it. And to Tony Scott, you know, this is a big step up for him in his careers as well. First off, you know, it sucks that he died. Uh, 
I he's he is a a director that I have really appreciated a lot of what he had done in his career. He has about six movies that I would categorize as a I would watch it whenever. It's not to say that they're the best films of all time or anything, just very entertaining, rewatchable films. And I I feel like that's I got to give kudos to directors who have that ability. You know, Enemy of the State, Crimson Tide, mm-hmm. Beverly Hills Cop 2. Absolutely, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Even Days of Thunder. These were all films. You know, he got in real tight with uh, Denzel later in his career, and they had a couple fun ones together. So it's just, it's one of those things where I look at a guy's career, and maybe it doesn't have the the big Oscar pull, but man, he knew how to make an entertaining film. The Fan. The Fan was awesome. And I know you didn't like it as much, but True Romance was fantastic. No, I, 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 I go listen to that one. It's, 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 it's off brand for me, but I did like it. Last Boy Scout? I even think, even though he was not as successful at the end, I think, I think Unstoppable, his last one, was quite good. And so most of his movies had good scores and soundtracks. You know, Hans Zimmer was a common collaborator yeah. with him. And, oh, yeah. You know, oh. Harold Faltermeyer. I mean, so... You know, I, I think that says something too. It's like to a good director, someone who can really pull all the aspects together. That's a good point. And he 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 calls the film Top Gun here purest form of escapism and mainlines entertainment. And this is where the critics and the audience, well, again, the audience scores are not what I would think they would be. This movie's loved. I know so many people are so diehard enthusiastic about this movie, and we we all know somebody who just loves this movie and. It's very popular, and it's because it's entertaining. That's why. It's, it's not a deep movie. It's not a thinker. But they captured the excitement off of it. And it, it's aged pretty well, to be honest with you, because when you're talking about like wowing people and dazzling people, it's hard to do that in a way that isn't just going to be topped three and five years later by something else. So, you know, these superhero movies are definitely a good, good sign of that. I mean, as technology and CGI and things like that move forward, what seemed amazing 10 years ago can, has to have uh, something else to stand on, on its legs later. And Top Gun has enough substance, enough substance that made people connect with these characters. I still think underwriting them to a point broadens them to where people want to root for them as much as they do. And then on the other hand, you know, it has to be well-made, and that's what Tony Scott does here. He excites, he thrills, and I, you're right, John. This is something he's good at throughout his career. I am surprised at the reviews that the, you know, the, what, 30 years worth of reviews have given this. Like, I, I, I find it to be a bit low, honestly. I know I'm a fan, but every once in a while, something that I thought was, you know, fairly wild, widely loved and respected, and I'm like, oh. For the opening of the film, director Tony Scott wanted to shoot an aircraft taking off, landing on an aircraft carrier and back lit by the sun. The carrier captain had to change course of the ship, and when Scott asked the ship if they could continue on the previous course and speed, he was told turning the ship around cost $25,000. Scott wrote the captain a quick check so the ship could be turned around and keep shooting for another five minutes. So, uh, according to Scott, the, the check later bounced, but I don't know if he's just saying that for the studio's standpoint, but that, that's a pretty... Uh, that's a pretty boss move, you know? Just, here, here's a $25,000 check. You just keep that boat. You keep going, man. 
I can't even fathom that amount for that for that maneuver. Ah, oh, gosh. Well, if you see the shot, you know you see the shot. It is an iconic opening. <laughs> Truth. Is it worth twenty five thousand dollars? I think it is. I mean, if you look at some of the the bankrolls for these movies, sure. Yes, and furthermore, another interesting thing is Top Gun is a widely purchased movie in the 80s. In the 80s, movies still cost an awful lot to buy in the mid-80s, and a very large amount. And Top Gun and E.T. and Batman are three of the most heavily owned movies out of the 80s because they lowered their prices to the point where people could afford to buy them, and they paid off for them in spades because people bought them and stuffed them in stockings and gifts for people, and... They end up in a lot of people's houses, and by virtue of people wanting to watch what the movie they have and get the money's worth out of it that they put into it and all that good stuff, and uh, these movies are VCR essentials. You know, you will find a lot of people who own Top Gun out of this, and by setting the price, you know, in the you know low twenties or upper teens at the time, that was a huge bargain over an at-home like a movie that you owned, and so that's an interesting thing that also helped this movie resonate that's a cool tidbit i didn't think about that we talked about it the signature volleyball scene featuring a glistening tom cruise and val kilmer took a whole day to shoot something that the studio did not expect for the scene uh, which was only a paragraph in the script the scene was scripted as a real game that they had kept score and everything and uh, tony shot it like a commercial and uh, they were all angry and how long and gratuitous the scene was but this is actually one of the scenes, movies, more famous scenes, and it has gone over very well with fans. We've teased it a bunch of times, but uh, Tony Scott went to work all day for that one. So Quickly, to the volleyball court. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of a man crush. I don't know. Can you guys run around the block ten times before we even start shooting? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, okay, now I need you to put sunscreen on each other. Why is this even? It's not even in the script. It's like, yeah, just that's right. do it. <laughs> Give it a good squeeze. Yeah. No, I don't think that was the right SPF. I'm going to need you to do that again. Start over. Get the hose. Well, you should probably rinse off. <laughs> Anthony Edwards did it right. Just wear a shirt. <laughs> Anthony, Anthony Edwards was like, I can take my shirt off too, guys. And Tony Scott's like, no, no, not you. Not you. <laughs> you can... You can keep your shirt on. Every other guy needs someone else to relate to, and you're it, Anthony. <laughs> Tom, Tom, Cruise, Tom Cruise is the 1%. You're the 99%. Just you know, appreciate it. Anthony, in fact, maybe you should wear sweatpants for this scene. Oh, it's, really, it's really hot out here. It's like, I think you should. After the car chase, when Charlie tells Maverick that she didn't want anyone to find out that she was falling for him, Maverick originally had a uh, line to say, and he forgot to say it, so he ad-libbed, just kissing, power-kissing Kelly McGillis instead. I felt like that was one of those things that um, I gave this movie a lot of credit for doing a better job dealing with female characters. I don't think you do that quite the same today. I don't know. Is the power kiss dead in today's movies, John? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh I think that kind of power kiss is, but you know, it, it's very dramatic and I guess kind of that 80s over the top thing, but I don't think anyone can do it like that anymore. I was thinking that myself. 
Also, following her into the women's room yes, uh, feels different now. <laughs> it felt, di- I'll it about felt this different counter. the whole time, honestly. <laughs> Do we count Spider-Man upside-down kiss? Is that a power kiss? Oh, no, no. That was, she rolled down his mask. She was, she was into that. Okay, all right. So, so this has to be a shut-up-and-kiss-me kiss? Yeah, yeah, this is a Sean Connery. I'm going to grab your, each of your shoulders with two of my hands and just... Go in for it, and then I'm going to cut you off, and now we're kissing. This is happening. That's what I mean by power kiss. So, um. Man, I don't think I've ever really considered it. I've, I feel like there might have been one between Zoe and Rob and Batman. And I'm not running it down for that. John's right. It's the 80s. They've done a much better job than they normally would. They did have to go back and shoot the elevator scene. Cruz's hair is actually different. And her hair's darker for another... Oh, both of them have moved on for the role, so his hair's, like, not military standard long, and hers is uh, darker. So she, they, they, like, jam on this hat on her because when test audiences watch this, they needed, they needed some steam between these two, and they didn't get it. So they, went, they had to go back and add it in there. Uh, feels crowbarred to me. Maybe it's just because I know that now, though. I, I don't have a strong opinion. Honestly, because of what I loved this movie for as a kid, you know, jets and flying and things of that nature, like, that whole aspect was kind of secondary to me, and I think in certain ways that kind of carried over to me even to adulthood. I mean, obviously watching it now, it is different, but for me it was always about the the flying. Well, it is... I think three years too soon for Love in an Elevator to have been written by Aerosmith, so it is a tragic lost opportunity. Maybe it inspired Steven Tyler to write it, so if that's the case, then it's done its job. So, Although I'm pretty sure that it's autobiographical, I'm sure that Steven Tyler has had Love in an Elevator. Probably. Like, I, I would put money on that. He doesn't have to live vicariously through Tom Cruise. <laughs> Paramount Pictures commissioned... Grumman and the makers of the F-14 to develop and install special camera mounts on the plane, allowing the filmmakers to use aerial point view footage of the Tomcat in flight. And this was uh, Tony Scott's first experience in filming with the Super 35 format, which was chosen due to the heavy weight and the anamorphic lenses, which would cause the cameras to fall off the fighter of the jets when they turned the corner and to allow the cameras to fit inside that cockpit to actually join them. So it's cool to see the camera work having to be very considerate for what they're doing and i gotta give tony's got a lot of credit here as well like like you were like you were saying john like he knows how to capture the magic and it it involves thinking through it at the technical level this movie does feel more like you're in the cockpit than than many even later ones absolutely and uh actually recently i i saw on tv a movie that came out around the same time called iron eagle and it was uh, an Air Force one. I think it was 85. But uh, the difference in the aerial photography is just stunning. They're at the same you know, time frame. Everything, I, I assume the Air Force you know, backed the movie Iron Eagle. But, I mean, it's just like they're on two different playing fields. You know, amateur and pro. With Top Gun, I think Tony's got nailed it. I think, Russell, you're right. It's just one of those things where they actually used the real equipment, as you pointed out, John. Like, that's an important part of this recipe, too. They didn't have to do it with a studio. They didn't have to just take a box and a soundstage and move it around like a, like a ride that you get in front of a grocery store, like a dime cart grocery <laughs> store. That's like, and, then they, and then they blue screen what you look at through the cockpit 
And I am not knocking you, Star Wars, for doing this, by the way. I still love you. So. But there's, there's an authenticity in what they're doing that pays dividends for real here, I think. Brian, what do you think about the vibe and the environment that we get, both being on base and this world that they've created here, North San Diego County? Uh, it reminds me almost directly of G.I. Jane, which presumably take place in the same place, I believe. I've been to that area. I've stayed in that area of San Diego twice. Have you gone to the house? No, <laughs> but it is one of Jess and I's favorite vacation places, and it's cool being down there. I'd, I'd even be lying if I said I didn't listen to the Top Gun soundtrack while I was there. Yeah, I, you know, I think they do a, a, a great job of that general vibe. The 100 Laurel Beach is a false address. Uh, the actual location of shooting, which is in, in Rosendio County, as I mentioned, has been uh, redeveloped for commercial tourist uses, but the house was actually preserved as a landmark and is actually referred to as the Top Gun House. And until 2008, it was still a rentable property that you could go rent. And in 2019, the house was actually protected and moved to another location in order to uh, undergo renovations and to keep it up and running. So people like to travel and see the Top Gun house. And uh, I wish houses got saved by picking them up and reconstructing them and moving them on trucks more often as an architect. I get a little bit frustrated that this one is not necessarily architecturally significant, but I, I do get to give them credit. People, people like this movie so much that this house holds some special value to people. We did not stay at the Del Coronado, uh, but we definitely used their beach. And I got to tell you, I spent seven hours on that beach sitting in a lawn chair watching helicopters fly overhead doing drills. And Jess is like, this is super annoying. And I was like, this is super awful. <laughs> and if you're on a tour, there's a place called Kansas City Barbecue, even though it is not in Kansas City in any way, shape or form. But the restaurant houses many props and memorabilia from the movie. Uh, as well, and people would uh, enjoy going there uh, as well. And it, it's definitely in the piano scene and the bar scene when they when they sing together. Uh, and it it does have a grease fire, and it uh, melted some of the original stuff that they had. Some of, some of it was destroyed, but they have it still. And so the restaurant has since been repaired to its original state, and you can still see uh, one of uh, I believe Maverick's helmet there, even with a little bit of actual real life fire damage to it. So. Uh, if you're a Top Gun fan, these are things you should want to go see. I said, what did they sing, Russell? Oh, Jerry, oh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> I, I like all the old stuff, by the way, that they're singing. Oh, yeah. Had to bring it up, though. I mean, I have no knock on the Righteous Brothers. It's not performed very well. I don't have any knocks on, uh, on Dog of Bay. I mean, that's one of the best songs ever made. And, uh, you know, You've Lost That Loving Feeling is, is a great one. And so, yeah. Hey, if you had stayed in this like early rock quadrant for me, I probably this, this that would probably up me a whole star. <laughs> to be honest with you, with the way they lean on their music, uh, that would make it a period piece. In which case, you wouldn't have very exciting fighter jets to work with. So <laughs> that would be a bit undoing. So, John, what do you think of the wardrobe? Brought leather jackets back. Yeah, I mean the wardrobe. It doesn't have to be a huge part of it, but it is. I mean, obviously the flight suits, awesome navy dress uniforms pretty awesome leather jackets awesome or just no shirts at all and playing volleyball again you know knocked out of the park on that one when precisely did leather jackets go out of fashion because i i, I don't know but i mean like there was the james dean era where james dean definitely 
put them out there. I don't know that they're there as much in the early 80s. I think this brings them back, at least how I'm reading about it. Now, feel free to write me in and correct me if I'm wrong. I wasn't really around for the early 80s to guarantee my fashion advice on this one or uh, my historical references aren't very good. But I just read that, hey, leather jackets start flying off the shelf. And as well as putting patches in American flag, like, you know, patches on jackets were a thing into the early 90s. And this movie definitely, like, lit the fire under that. So, which is, like you said, it's a military thing, but they definitely overdo it. Like, people who are aficionados say, say like, they're a little too flared up. Too many pieces of flair on these. On these, on these. I want to see at least 15 pieces of flair on that jacket. <laughs> I, uh, no, I don't know. I mean, you know, I was born in 84. I think my grandfather bought me a leather jacket when I was probably 10. And I think I slept in that thing. So I'm, it's an honest question. Well, Tony Scott actually said uh, to the people who said, you're putting too much flair, too much stuff. You're adorning their, like Navy fighter pilots would never do that. And he just responded uh, to them. uh, we're making a movie for, not for Navy fire pilots, we're making it for Kansas wheat farmers who don't know the difference. So this movie's for you, Kansas wheat farmers. Tony was thinking about you and the, and the wheat that you make. So, in your gluteny goodness. <laughs> Tony was good like that. John, what makes you happy with the special effects in this movie? They're pretty strong even today. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's what you get when you use real, you know, filming. It's harder to date, like you were talking about, especially with CGI. Like something that looked good ten years ago might have wowed me. Like if you watch it today, yeah, might not hold up so much. But with this one, uh, you know, especially the sound is done well. The the music, as we've already, I just think all all that together, it works. How many missile shots do you think that they actually got to make in this movie? Seventeen. I'm gonna go with nine. Two. You, the uh, the Navy only authorized two missile shots to be used in this film. And if you're, if you're actually looking for it, you uh, can tell that it's taken from several different angles of the same exact missile firing and blowing up. So all the missile shots in this film are conducted by using either miniatures of other planes and other rockets and using the same close-up footage and the actual footage of the missile being deployed from the actual uh, fighter jets themselves. Now, if you think, Hey, wait a minute. This doesn't feel like a cheap rewind. Well, so did the Navy. And they conducted an actual investigation to say, how many missiles did you fire? And where are all the accountings of all the missiles? You had to have fired closer to 17 or at least nine. But no, that's that's how much Tony Scott knows how to get out of two missiles. Wow. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. Stunt pilot Art Scholl, unfortunately, was killed. During the production of this movie, he was age 54. He died when his uh, Pitts 2 or S2 camera plane failed to recover from a flat spin and plunged in the Pacific Ocean. So the exact cause of the crash was never exactly determined and his body was never recovered. And uh, the film makes a nice little dedication to him at the end of the movie. So unfortunate real life death toll one in making this movie from the stunt crew. So uh, sorry to Art Scholl and his family on this one. John, you're in ahead of some awards with us. Let's do it. From the Godfather himself, MVP of Top Gun. Tony Scott, we've already discussed, you know, why, but really just his ability to pull all the aspects needed to make this movie the popcorn movie that it is, and a successful one at that. 
Fry, how about you? I gave my MVP on this one to Tom Cruise. Uh, it, it, it was a gateway drug. There are at least a dozen movies he has made that are watch anytime movies for me. He definitely uh, got on the Tony Scott train and found other movies like this that, uh, you know, you have earworms, songs that get stuck in your head. Uh, this is more like an eye worm. Mine is going to be Tom Cruise as well. This is his vehicle to stardom. This is the movie doesn't become what it is without him. He's the face that became one of the most marketable box office superstars. And I actually don't think he is one of the greatest actors, but people love Tom Cruise as a personality. And I mean, some of it just might be his, you know, he's a good looking dude. And some of it just might be, you know, he goes after these thrilling type movies, certainly dating back to Top Gun here. This is the template of what will become one of Hollywood's biggest stars from this generation. And it's, it's here in Top Gun. Is it his best movie? Let me ask that question. I'm going to go no. There's one, there's one notably that I can say I like more, but this one rivals it pretty. It might be a 1B. Okay. And it's not legend for you then? <laughs> it's definitely not legend. You know, that's tough. Is this the top of the mountain for, for Tom Cruise? I think that, you know, probably with his action career, it doesn't get any higher, especially for what, well, I guess what was a standalone blockbuster Mission Impossible. I guess you could make an argument for it. But, you know, I, I like him in movies like Magnolia. So, but that's a, it's a totally different type of movie, though. Mm -hmm. It's almost, almost hard to compare, you know. He, he delivers more in other performances as an actor such as the Jerry Maguire or a uh, few good men. Valkyrie was exceptional. I think my top of the mountain for Cruz might be a few good men. I like Minority Report a lot. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And who could ever forget his unforgettable performance in Tropic Thunder? <laughs> uh, super, uh, I, I still think it's one of the most underrated movies I've ever seen was Edge of Tomorrow. It, uh, thank that's you. a really, it is really good one. Absolutely terrifically good movie that no one apparently saw. I will back like, you up on that. That was a good movie. Edge of Tomorrow was terrific. Well, they had to change the name so, a few times. They got confused on how to market it. I remember but it's great. Live, Die, Repeat. Yeah. Best Supporting Actor. Brian, do I have to ask? Is it Val Kilmer? Uh, no, it's Anthony Edwards. Whoa, wow. You can't have Maverick without Goose. The, from the Val Kilmer fan club. Wow, okay. I can't discuss Top Gun Maverick yet. It'll right. <laughs> if this if this la if it lasts that long, but there is a comparison that I would make with the quote antagonist character from Top Gun Maverick that that is what Maverick is without Goose. So if you take away Goose from Tom Cruise, you get a different character. Yeah. Yeah, he does an amazing job of making a very likable character. I mean, uh, the loss of Goose is uh, one of those... Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of bros out there who are shed a little tear for that one. So it's... <laughs> um, I will admit, though, when, when they're packing up all the stuff and putting it in the box and handing it to his family, you know, it, that's, that's a substantive moment there. So, John, who's your best supporting actor? Um, with with Fry on this one, one hundred percent, Anthony Edwards. Most of these super superlatives are hard to pick. Like, there's a lot of good choices. Val Kilmer was great, but 
Yeah, no, Anthony Edwards. Interesting. I'm gonna go with Val Kilmer on this one. I. Yeah, it's not wrong. Exactly, it's not wrong. Yeah, it's not wrong. Yeah, that that rivalry. I mean, if you think of a moment in the movie, like you know them being in each other's faces, like you're dangerous, and like that chomp that he does with his I teeth. Am. Yeah, yeah, I I mean, that's... That was a good chop. That's a good chop. So, exactly. That was a good acting decision on his part. I mean, uh, he is thoroughly... I I disagree with you, Fry. He's thoroughly dislikable. They have their work cut out for him to bring him back to make him likable in the end, where you do respect him for his talent, but uh, they they managed to make it happen. I think it's only through repeated watches that you have... You know that it will finish out that way, because otherwise, he's very dislikable <laughs> through, through three quarters of this movie and i think he does a great job of it so hidden gem brian tim robbins call sign merlin you know he actually couldn't be a fighter pilot he's too tall mm-hmm. okay. okay so it's funny in, in my notes it says cool call sign and he reminds me of too tall from we were soldiers so completely agree uh, I was I was on that a hundred percent, and I I absolutely love his character, loved his re reintroduction into the film for the last stage. So cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish that there had been a little bit of. You mentioned the desire for more bonding. I wish we had gotten a little bit of like I'll never fill Goose's shoes, but like we got we got to get our own little vibe going here, kind of thing. Uh, the wingman concept is such a very strong thing for this movie. We don't get enough Merlin in this movie. So. I, I don't think that you will ever find a large man making a more shrill sound in a film than Tim Robbins. I'm going to hit the brakes. And You're going to do what? Right by. <clears throat> You're going to do what? <laughs> John, how about you? Who's your hidden gem? Well, this one was really tough for me, so I'm, Fry, I'm glad you said that because I really wanted to say that. But actually, uh, I'm going a little bit of a different route up. I'm going with uh, this uh, man named Pete Pettigrew. He's a rear admiral, and he's in the uh, bar scene with Charlie, who's the old man. But he was one of the first instructors for Top Gun uh, and is an actual ad- admiral for the Navy. Came up with the idea of the flat spin in the film. I thought that was pretty cool that they actually put him in like the dramatic part of the film. Are we talking about you've lost that loving feeling bar scene? Yep. Him at the airport bar scene. Yeah, yes, yes. Sorry. I was like going through all the different bar scenes of the movie. And I'm it's like, her older, that older guy. It's, it's the older guy that yeah. like he's yeah. criticizing her for being. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's the Godfather. That's why he does this. I mean, he made this. That, that's the correct answer right there. That was my, that was my hidden gem right there. I thought I was all clever on that one. He stole all the thunder. <laughs> so yeah. He, he's a retired Navy pilot and Top Gun instructor shot down enemy aircrafts in the vietnam war he's a he's a real life hero himself so uh working his way in there if you had to recast somebody put somebody else in their place who's it going to be brian i kind of got a little clever on this because of uh tom cruise has an uncredited part getting shot in uh young guns so my recast is i want kevin bacon and Kiefer sutherland as cougar and wolfman basically the number three behind maverick goose iceman and uh slider yeah honestly bacon's so good he would be an excellent iceman himself to be honest with you he'd be great for something like this so that's a great choice john how about you recast again you know i i found this one extremely difficult but actually i uh was thinking kelly mcgillis on this and uh 
although I loved Meg Ryan's role in this, I, I'd have liked to see Meg Ryan in that role. But oh, she's such a sweetheart, though, being you know Goose's wife. Oh man, that you want to see her go be all tough and like you know brass tacks at first. I guess having seen her in later movies, yeah. Oh man, she's such a sweetheart in this one. I hate to. Okay, no, it's, it, it, that's your recast, man. That's okay. No, um, Russell's gonna allow you to have that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna also do Kelly McGillis, not because she didn't do a great job. I'm gonna go with Carrie Fisher. She's she's got that same. She's about she's one year older than Kelly McGillis, so the age is all gonna work out. She's coming off the Man with One Rich Shoe, excellent movie, a lot of fun. Same year she does Hannah and her sisters, and. Uh, she she rocks it as Princess Leia. I mean, she's she's a tough she's a tough gal, and she's got a backbone. And I I think she would do a great job of this role. And I guess I could maybe amend mine from what you said before. Diane Lane would be a good recast for that. But can she rock the lipstick? Yes, I, and in both of their cases, I think. Gosh, I don't know that that sly stare with that lipstick, man. If you had to pick a best scene, Brian, what would it be? My best scene's Great Balls of Fire. That that lunch scene solidify. You know, Maverick has a a humanity to him in that scene that usually his his dogged intensity to be the best on his own terms overrides, and you see this piece of him that gets vicariously filled through Goose. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great choice, and that's what makes you connect to Goose. Like, without that, the loss is... You, you as an audience member do not feel it as much. And so, therefore, you won't have the patience to go through all that Maverick is about to go through in subsequent scenes. So, that's it. That's, that's what makes you care about him. He's got that... He's a dad. He's a good husband. I mean, how about you, John? Best scene? I think I kind of picked mine more from a uh, plot point at this uh, point, and that's uh, actually when Viper tells him about his father like and what actually happened you know I, I think tom scarrett does a good job of it and uh, as far as maverick's you know journey especially what he's going through that's a huge piece that like I, I think that helps him get back on top or back in the saddle as it were and my favorite scene is going to be the final battle scene it takes an hour and 27 minutes to get the action payoff that i'm <laughs> wanting where they are enemy fighting you know, not training, not a simulation, not just trying to one-up Iceman on the charts, but actually fighting a real villain, and it works out great. But was it happens. a real I villain? There was... It's like an unnamed state. It was the Cold War. None of us really, I guess, understood that. But No, I, I just need a, ba- I need a bad guy like that <laughs> at the end. I mean, I needed that really bad. I mean, I was starting to, I was starting to wane a little bit. With the training things, and even with the goose death, I was still. This is the opposition we needed, and I don't know if I want this movie to be edited differently or if I need it to be significantly longer. But this, <laughs> I, I feel bad for saying that. This this last fifteen minutes is where this movie lives for me at, at its best. So the the spine of the movie is the relationship with Charlie. And without that, this movie actually is super lightweight. But um. This, this, this end scene, they really got something here, and I could have done twice as much of that. That, that dog fighting at the end. That's what you leave the theaters jacked up about, and you're like, sign me up, I want to be a U.S. Navy pilot. That's what did it. <laughs> yeah, when I would watch it as a kid, it's like, 
that those are the only scenes I wanted to watch. Go get popcorn or whatever. Fast forward. I just want to see the flying. One twenty-seven though. That's when that's when it kicks into gear for me. So uh, <laughs> best wardrobe or makeup moment, Brian. I mean, it's got to be the leather jacket, right? Since we've already brought up that uh, perhaps they were on their uh, their deathbed anyway. It's yeah. got to be the, uh, the 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 fuzzed up pilot coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, how about you? Yeah, goose playing volleyball. <laughs> sure, it's on. That's my favorite wardrobe moment. Like compared to what's going on in the rest of the scene. Have Anthony Edwards come up to the director. Thought we were gonna do shirts and skins. <laughs> we, we are. It's it's just me wearing a shirt. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a problem? Mm-hmm. It's no. like it had to be awkward, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> I've been working out for this, and I can mm, no no. <laughs> Uh, mine is with Fry there. I mean, one of those quintessential moments is uh, definitely the uh, the leather jacket there on the on the motorcycle. So, best shot, Brian. Tom Cruise flipping the bird. It's a fun moment. Absolutely love it. I even like the storytelling aspect of it. Like when they're they're telling it, and you know, he dude calls BS, and he goes, "No, nah, it's great, man. I got a Polaroid up." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John, what about your best shot? Make it two. That's exactly mine. Inverted, flipping the bird. I gotta be a downer here. I'm gonna do the shot of Tom Cruise as he collects Goose's stuff for his wife and son, and he walks into the. He walks from the left. He walks to the right, and he opens up the door partially. He looks down. He closes it. Pauses. Puts his hand on the door. It's just grief over overcomes him. He turns away from the camera, and as it zooms in, we see the mirror, and his eyes are closed in the mirror. And then it puts his back on the door, holding back the tears. And now the camera's not looking up to the mirror anymore. Uh, the ability to show Tom Cruise in a tight corridor here to show the, the pressure on the knuckles, the back. The grief is coming through here in this scene right here. And uh, this shot really reinforces that. So Tony Scott's not just good at capturing the action. He's good at pulling at your heartstrings with that camera, too. So. Good work then. Because he, he goes to instant vulnerability after that, too, like when he goes and talks to her. Yeah. Change one thing. Brian, what would you change? I never fully liked how much Maverick fell apart. Like, I understand losing your Rio and, and all that, and I understand what a plot point that was, but he just always seemed so cocky that I, it just surprises me. That he would do that. It, it just... Yeah, that it would be that interesting. And That's a good point. I wouldn't have changed it. Like again, this isn't my change one thing. It just rankled me a little bit. Yeah, it does seem uncharacteristic of him, though. You're right. I mean, but like Stella, he gets his groove back. Right. I I wouldn't actually change it. I it just. It just bothered. I think that's where the kind of the, the dad thing comes into play, though, because you know he's being told that his father, who did the same job that. He does, which by its nature is inherently dangerous, that he was killed because he made a mistake. And he even says at one point in the movie, he's just like, that doesn't make sense. Like, it, he wouldn't have made a mistake. Did they lay the groundwork enough to get you there, though? That's a good point. You know, well, it just, I think his confidence is, is falling apart. Like, you know, that he did something wrong. Like, yeah. And, you know, that's, being a pilot is who he is. and. Yeah, you, you don't want to think up there. He did say it earlier. Once you're thinking, you know, that's not good. 
and likely, you know, if he's got a hot head, like, who is the one that probably pulled him down most of the time? Goose. It's a rough time. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, you know, Viper doing that for him was a poignant moment. Because yeah. he could have, you know, been fired. Is this your change one thing, too, John? Or... I, actually, uh, I was going to say at the end, I, I kind of wish he'd have, you know, just stayed a pilot as opposed to an instructor. Okay. Yeah. And mine, I kind of tipped my hand just a second ago. Less training, more being in the field with real bad guys. You know, it's interesting you say that. I One of my favorite things in the world are military movies with like a very, very protracted basic training scene. Like it's it's something I actually enjoy working out to. So like I actually prefer movies that have a lot of not necessarily a montage to it, but a lot of procedural training. Well, if we had taken the typical 80s montage and done another 15-minute Kenny Loggins run, this movie would have been about 40 minutes. <laughs> so they couldn't have done that. <laughs> Best quote, Brian, do you feel the need? The list is long and distinguished. Yes, yeah, so is my Johnson. Okay, okay. How about you, John? Actually, mine uh, is just at the end of the exchange before they sing, you've lost that love and feeling, but uh, when Goose just kind of inserts uh, to nobody around, he just said, when I say she's lost that love and feeling, he's like, I hate it when she does that. No, no she hasn't. Yeah. God, I hate it when she yeah. I liked the part where Viper's like, in case some of you are wondering who the best pilot is, they're up there on this plaque. Do you think you'll be up there on this plaque? Yes, sir. Uh it's pretty arrogant considering the company you're in. Yes, sir. And I love Viper's line. I'm like, I like that. In a pot. I like that he liked that confidence that he had. So one of the worst ones I, that I just have to call out was uh, they were talking in the training about dogfighting. And one guy's like, this gives me a hard on. And then leans over and smiles and says, don't tease me. And I'm like, plane fighting should not cause arousal. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> I think these guys really enjoy what they do for a living. I don't. I don't know. I just. Like, really enjoy it. Tom Cruise got out of a plane covered in vomit and said, yes, sign me up for this. I, I think you are underestimating the arousal factor of adrenaline. It's just like the scene in the other guys where he's just like, did you just shout America? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm, I'm a little bit excited right now. <laughs> well, John, man, it's has been a blast having the godfather of Retro Movie Roundtable come back. We appreciate that. It's been too long, man. It has been. No, thank you for having me. It's been fun. We're going to come full circle and on a five-star scale with half-star interval, John, what would you rate Top Gun from 1986? Four and a half stars. Strong showing. Strong showing. You know, it, it, it's got me penned for, you know, fighter jets and 80s music and all that stuff in, in, anyway. And I, I think it, you know, holds up and just a, a strong movie for me. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, how about you? Five star scale. I am giving this a solid four star just because I don't I don't do partials. Yeah, it's this is this is, this is such a good movie. If you did, would you match John's 4.5? If you did, just if you did. You can't take me there. Okay, I'm trying to bait him in. You can, you, you can, can take my news. breath away, but you can't take me there. 
Maybe you can drop a Christmas miracle on us and drop a half star <laughs> interval at some point. You have in the hit films past, but at some point you got off the half star wagon. I, I, I don't. I still don't remember when it would have been. It had to have been like the very beginning when I was just like, oh, hi, um, this. <laughs> Nobody made fun of you. They didn't just go around the street going like, there goes half star fry. <laughs> I, 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 I just, I, I feel like I should have had a problem with it all along. It's not weakness on your part. It's okay. I, I, I don't mind that anybody else does it. I just, I, I don't personally do it. Okay. Okay. I delayed getting to this point, but um, I, I give this movie two stars. I knew it. <laughs> you said nice things. I heard you. <laughs> yes. And the main reason for this is, as I alluded to before, this movie is a lot of waiting to get to the parts that really do it for me. And, the, and it is style is there, but I, the substance is not there for me as much. And, when the music is a big part of your experience as it is, and it definitely is, and you're not on board with it, it's, that, that can be a bit of a problem. So on the other hand, I, I get the appeal. It's just this is maybe I'm not the target audience. Can I ask you, do you think if you saw it as a child, it would be different? No, I think I would have had an even more negative response. <laughs> really? I think I fell asleep. I think, I think I fell asleep to it on a good go at it and i think that this wasn't what i was i think it would have gone really worse for me actually and i'd gone through all this stuff with charlie and stuff like that as a kid and not like if that's not the payoff then this movie is going to be really rough for you i would say i just don't think that there was enough flying to just like fast and furious movies have more driving than them than this has flying does that make sense yeah yeah but that's just me and I, I just got done earlier, and I'm one of the only Americans who would choose to go to the National Gallery right across from the nation's lawn rather than go to the Air and Space Museum. And some of that's just me. I mean, and Russell, in all fairness, they were given two missile shots. That's it. <laughs> like, that's what you got to work with. They make them count. They do. I know. I do. Hey, I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe more miniatures would be a... You know, kind of a, oh no, Mr. Bill presents uh, kind of thing. I, sign me up for more of that if, I, if you need to. Just get me some more fire. <laughs> oh no! Pew, 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 pew! <laughs> <laughs> I, I want a comparison with how many missile shots Independence Day got. Right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I would almost say that if you want aerial combat, Independence Day is your move. I enjoy Independence Day more, so I will back you up on that. Or Top Gun Maverick. Or Top Gun I don't, uh, Russ, did you see Maverick? No. And that's why I'm avoiding talking Ooh. about it at all. So, yeah. You, boo, well, Andy as you should, boo. It's changed my viewpoint on the first movie, though. So it is a little relevant. Yeah, it's, it's relevant. It is relevant. All right. Brian, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Option one, The Art of War. When a ruthless terrorist threatens to bring down the United Nations, they frame one man they believe can stop them, an international security expert named Shaw. Now he must run from his own allies to become the solitary force for good as he tries. Option two, The Italian Job, 2003. Charlie Croker pulled off the crime of a lifetime. The one thing he didn't plan on was being double-crossed. Along with a drop-dead gorgeous safecracker, Croker and his team take off to re-steal the land. And option three, Ronin. A briefcase with an undisclosed content sought by Irish terrorists and the Russian mob makes its way into criminal hands. An Irish liaison assembles a squad of mercenaries, or Ronin, and gives them the thorny task of covering it. 
Hmm. You know, I haven't seen Ronan, and uh, we have an underrepresented De Niro, so let's, let's do De Niro here. Let's go Ronan. All right, Ronan it is. All right. John, thank you so much for returning. We appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, all the lawyers, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear more from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Those ratings, reviews, and subscriptions help others find the show. We're on YouTube. Give us a like on Facebook. Uh, follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. And you will get the beta episodes when you become a Patreon supporter, which gives you, I believe, nine episodes that John and I did together. So you will get a lot more of John on those as well. So uh, the show finding its way to what it was. <laughs> As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian. I've fallen for you like a blind roofer. My heart is falling down around my ankles like a wet pair of pants. My whole life, all I've wanted to do is fly, bomb stuff, shoot people down. And Mighty Wings is still the worst song Cheap Trick has ever made.